Ten years ago this week, the world witnessed one of the biggest financial crashes in history. What the heck is going on down here? Uh, I don't know. There is fear. This is capitulation, really. I mean, it is classic capitulation. There is fear in this market. You can take a look. In just half an hour, a trillion dollars was wiped off the U.S. stock market. Now, now, I got it. Let's pull P&G back up. All right, it was down, what, 23%. Then four minutes later, it was down 24%. But when the authorities investigated the cause of this global market meltdown, the story became even more astounding. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, The Hound of Hounslow and The Flash Crash. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. At six o'clock in the morning on a cold April day in 2015, two FBI agents, two prosecutors from the Department of Justice and half a dozen police officers rendezvoused at a McDonald's near Heathrow Airport. After discussing the plan one last time, they entered the streets of Hounslow and drove to a fairly standard looking suburban address, a semi-detached house in suburbia with net curtains and a satellite dish outside and the phalanx of officers uh, arrive at the porch and knock on the door and quite small gentleman uh, Asian guy with a beard answers the door amazed to see all these police there he shouts upstairs Navinda come downstairs a couple of minutes later this 36 year old guy who looks a lot younger wearing tracksuit bottoms and a sweatshirt comes to the hallway his hair kind of skew with and at that point the officers read him his rights they say nav we're here to arrest you for spoofing the market and for market manipulation and nav is (laughs) shocked at this turn of events later on that morning the police search the property they go into nav's bedroom looks like a 13 year old's bedroom really there's a single bed there's a load of football paraphernalia everywhere there's a computer console there's fifa various editions and at the end of the bed is the scene of the crime if you like it's nav's computer setup which is basically a home pc with a couple of screens and a fairly standard broadband connection And for the FBI agents and for the U.S. authorities that have been monitoring this guy for three years, they know he's worth $70 million and were expecting to find some kind of criminal mastermind. It was a complete shock. Telling me about Navinda Sarau's arrest is journalist Liam Vaughan. 
I write about white-collar crime. I've covered everything from traders at big banks like JP Morgan and UBS who were accused of manipulating global interest rates, or I covered stories about Russian money launderers with links to the Kremlin. But what happened with Navinda is completely out of the ordinary and inspired Liam to write a book about the case. So when Nav's story came along, it was completely different. It was completely unique. And as a character and as an individual, he was just so different to the type of people that I normally write about in my career. So there he is in the middle of all of this. He's, he's just woken up at the crack of dawn and there are FBI people waiting at the doorstep to arrest him. Tell me about the man in the middle of all of that. Who, who is he? Navinda Sorrell was a normal suburban kid from Hounslow, the youngest of three brothers. Growing up, he was very gifted at maths. When Nav was a child, about three years old, he stumbled upon a little professor times table game. And Nav took to this thing straight away and very quickly had learned the basic times tables. By the time he got to school, he could multiply much, much longer digits in his head without really thinking. It was almost like his memory was so good that he didn't need a pen and a paper. He could just see the workings in his brain in real time. Was he spotted as a, a very gifted kid at school? Not really. I mean, he, you know, he was a kind of straight A and B student, but he was also quite a naughty and cheeky kid. He was recognised as a bright kid, but not as, a, as almost like a genius, which is actually what he sort of turned out to be. He went to a fairly average school in Hounslow and, you know, didn't work very hard and still did pretty well and went to Brunel University, studied maths there. You sort of talk about him being a genius. I mean, was he emotionally the same as other people? He's a very bubbly guy, incredibly personable. Everyone that I spoke to throughout the course of this really, really likes him. He also wasn't diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome until much later after his arrest. But actually, if you look at the kind of characteristics of Asperger's, you're talking about obsessive interests, maybe kind of uh, extreme abilities in quite narrow areas, inability to maybe look at the world in nuanced ways, social idiosyncrasies. And Nav had all of that. How does he go from being a popular, bright, but slightly awkward school kid in Hounslow to a financial genius? So. Nav applied for a job at a place called Futex, which was uh, what's known as a trading arcade. They got their recruits by advertising in the Evening Standard. You know, there was literally an advert that said, wanted trainee futures traders. Uh, I think one of the characteristics was must work well under pressure. This place was above a Waitrose supermarket in Weybridge in Surrey. So it's kind of... So not, not a city firm. No, it's about as far away from that as you can get. And the way that the business works is they take on kind of wannabe traders. They train them in things like economics and how to use the computer to make trades. Then they let them loose with the firm's money. And those that are successful, they give more and more money. And those that are not successful, they just cut. So Nav, in 2003, applied for a position at Futex. 
and he got one of the slots there. He just found that he uh, had a complete aptitude for this type of trading. So he was doing something called scalping, which is literally looking at all of the orders that are coming into the market, thousands and thousands every second. He had no idea really about kind of bigger questions of economic policy. It was really about reacting to, to patterns in the data in front of him. Futex was founded by a guy called Paolo Rossi and his brother, Marco Rossi. Paolo Rossi was interviewed shortly after Nav was arrested in an extended accent. He says, Nav was always going to be the kind of person that I believe would be legendary, potentially legendary in some way in the future. And, and afterwards, apparently Futex had CVs come flooding in for days from kids that wanted to be like him. Paolo Rossi uh, was one of those traders that you might recall from the 80s that are in the pits in the city of London, you know, wearing the, the suits and the coloured jackets and moving their arms very quickly. This is the, like the, the, the classic film scene of them on a phone, on several phones, shouting bye, bye, bye. Yes, exactly. So, so that was Paolo's world. And he was incredibly gifted at doing that, you know, which is a different type of world. Nav's story really coincides with this kind of evolution of financial markets because in about the late kind of 90s, 98, 99, more and more trading moves away from those pits where Paolo made his money and to to computers. And how successful was he? How well was he doing? He joined Futex in 2003. By the time he left in 2008, he was worth £2 million and by 2009, he was worth £12 million. After his time at Futex, under the guidance of Paolo Rossi, Nav decides to move on to his bedroom in his parents' house. It's here that the Hound of Hounslow, unbeknownst to those closest to him, launched his financial trading empire. As a character, Nav is somebody who never is happy. He always wants more. But starting in around 2007, the markets really start to change because of the arrival of a new breed of market participant uh, called high-frequency traders. And what they are is essentially algorithmic trading firms that do a very similar thing to NAV, which is look at all the orders coming into the market, and then they program very fast computers to react to that information and get in front of where the market's about to move. And this dawning of this new age of high frequency trading completely changed the face of financial markets and was actually very controversial and at one point they were making 10 billion dollars a year really arguably at the expense of you or i now nav wasn't necessarily so concerned about the efficacy of that he was more concerned that suddenly it was really hard for him to trade anymore like the markets just became harder and harder for human beings like nav even the most gifted so it can't compete against an algorithm absolutely right so to fight back nav designed his own machine called the nav trader which fired off fake buy and sell orders tricking the algorithms about which way the market was about to move This process didn't have a name at the time, but it's since become known as spoofing. He absolutely did realise what he was doing was wrong. And the the way we know that is because he pleaded guilty, ultimately. However, he was also a guy who was on the autism spectrum and he saw other people doing this. I found this amazing document in 2007. He goes on a popular forum for traders and he says, oh my God, can you believe 
how much cheating is going on in the markets. It's a complete disgrace. I keep complaining about it, but nobody's doing anything. And then a couple of days later, he goes back on this forum and he t- turns around and says, I'm so sick of this. I'm going to build my own machine. You know, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. And so he kind of lays out there in black and white what his plan. What he was going to do. What he was going to do, yeah. He complained about it to the financial regulator as well. He would say things like, he would, hilariously, he would call these HFT firms nerds and geeks. And he would, he would say, why are all these nerds manipulating the market? For NAV, he saw other people doing it. He saw that they weren't getting caught. He complained about it and nobody took it seriously. So he justified it in his own mind as, well, I'm not going to get caught either. And, you know, if they can do it, why can't I do it? And I think that the reason he viewed things like that is probably because he doesn't see the world quite the same way as as you or I do. When he had complained to the regulators, was he taken seriously? The exchanges hugely benefited from all of the volume that these high-frequency trading firms brought. There was a slight conflict of interest there, arguably. His trading data was available to them at any point in time, and they could have said, Nav, cut it out, but they never did that. And instead, it escalated and escalated until he gets this knock on the door in 2015. Everyone in the market was basically turning a blind eye, which is why he felt, if everyone else is doing it, it's it's okay. And then he gets caught out. <laughs> yes, exactly. I mean, is that just bad luck? He took it to a, a much higher level than lots of other people. And he didn't do the things that other people do to try and disguise their behaviour. So... You know, when the regulator gets in touch with him, he tells them to kiss my ass. And when he first gets letters about his trading, he trades bigger and bigger and bigger size. Really? His response isn't to turn it down, it's to go the other way? There was a huge amount of outpouring of sympathy for Nav after his arrest. And lots of people uh, felt, hang on a minute, if the whole market's corrupt and everyone else is doing shady things, then why are you picking on the guy in his bedroom in Hounslow? But if you look at the trading data, whilst it is true that there was lots of shady shenanigans going on, NAV was also doing it to a very, very high level and volume. Do you remember what it's like being in your 20s? I sometimes look back at that period of my life and laugh just as much as I cringe. If you do the same, then you've got to watch Queenie, the new original series on Hulu. Who is Queenie? Queenie is a 20-something year old living in London. She's facing all the firsts. First major heartbreak, first shitty apartment and soul-sucking job, first therapy session to work through those mommy issues. Can she turn her quarter-life crisis into a revolution? Maybe. Will she make some questionable decisions along the way? Definitely. All episodes of Queenie premiere June 7th, streaming on Hulu. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Scott, you're there. What what is what is the talk? What happens from here? But what are people saying now? You're down 800. In this market, you can take a look at what has happened with the VIX absolutely exploding today. You have seen a flight to safety within gold, a flight to quality no, within treasuries, a flight, a flight out of equities from almost every single major sector. On that day in 2010, the day of the flash crash, Liam is hard at work in the Bloomberg newsroom, watching the markets having a turbulent day. And that's before $1 trillion is suddenly wiped off the US stock market in the course of just half an hour. There was the Eurozone crisis going on, there was the Greek debt crisis happening, and markets were already in turmoil. Then that afternoon, about half past one, Suddenly, and without warning, the markets just tanked. There was just a complete turmoil as panic set in. That is absurd. What is? Well, I mean, that, the machines obviously broke. The system broke. Yeah. I mean, but, now, but there should be an investigation because there should that, be. That's why I say this is like a trillion dollars of investors' money had disappeared, and then just as quickly and miraculously, markets started to recover again. Various ideas swirled around about what had caused the crash. But it would take another five years before the FBI came knocking on Navinda's parents' door in Hounslow in West London. The fascinating thing is the idea that a guy in his bedroom, albeit a brilliant trader, was capable of having such a profound impact, not just on the UK markets, but on the global financial markets. What did actually happen? I mean, do, was it the high-frequency traders? <laughs> So it's a very good question. It's the million dollar question or the trillion dollar question. <laughs> yes, quite. I, I hate to disappoint, but ultimately there remains, even amongst the most well-regarded people, differences of, of opinion coming up with a single cause or a number of causes of a, of a financial market. Is they're so complex and so many actors are involved that you can't really reverse engineer it with any kind of satisfactory way. The bottom line is, let's look at the facts. He stopped his algorithm about three minutes before this crash. We're working on one-tenth of a second where he puts in these fake, these spoof trades that don't really exist, really to trick other people that are defrauding the average market player like myself. Really? So, is, is that defense going to work? I, I think it absolutely could work because wants, it's the government. It's yeah. the government that created this entire environment in the first place, and he's just playing along with it. No, but the guy, David, with all due respect, the guy's putting in. Some people will say it's because of the advent of high-frequency traders. Some people will say it's because of NAV spoofing. Some people will say it's this um, pension fund in Kansas City that had placed a huge sell order at the time. Uh, and the, the truth of the matter is, they all contributed to it, but. You know, whether NAV made the difference is, is an unanswered question. But to be fair to the U.S. authorities, they were very careful to say that he contributed, helped cause the crash. They never pinned it on him. But, you know, as soon as it got picked up by the press, he got known as the flash crash trader. And so some of the nuance of, of that was lost. A lone trader who worked from his parents' home in London. 
36-year-old Navender Singh Saro was arrested on Tuesday and is currently in a UK jail. Appearing in court today, the 36-year-old heard the 22 charges read out against him, which include wire fraud, commodity fraud, commodity manipulation and spoofing. He did not enter a plea. It must have been very odd for, for both the FBI, the US authorities who've been looking at this for so long and they get this one lone trader, but also, you know, for, for, for the press and the reaction to it. I mean, this guy, is, he's not a wolf of Wall Street. You know, I remember at the time I, I was working as a reporter and just by a stroke of luck, I happened to know a guy that used to work at Futex. And I remember going to meet him for a drink and talking about NAV and just the anecdotes and the stories he was telling were just hilarious, you know, about how he used to wear these kind of bright red ear defenders of the type that road workers normally wear in the office and, you know, would drink milk out of the jug. And just he was just a weird guy who had all these idiosyncrasies. And I think, you know, for the press, gradually over time, it just became more and more of a kind of slightly comical story. And the title Hound of Hounslow. I think it was in the Daily Mail. Yeah, he didn't want to tell his friends or his family about all the money. Instead, he trusted a series of financial advisors. He gets introduced via his accountant and other people to various kind of investors who tell him that they can help increase his uh, returns on his money. So, for example, he puts lots of money into an investment fund that's run by a Mexican entrepreneur whose name is Jesus and another guy who looks like Steven Seagal is six foot four and had come up with some new gambling business idea. What did happen to the money? Shortly after Nav was arrested, he gets taken to court and the judge decides to set bail at five million pounds because on paper Nav's worth 70 million dollars. And then he gets taken away to Wandsworth Prison which is this kind of Victorian fortress that was used in the movie Clockwork Orange, if you can imagine the kind of foreboding type of environment it is. Yeah. And Nav thinks he's going to be out within a day or two, but he can't instantly get hold of the money because it's not in a bank account. And his lawyers at that point start phoning around these various investors and saying, hey, you know Nav's money, it would be really useful to have that now because he's in prison. And what happens is that these various investors... Uh, tell him, oh, I'm really sorry, but uh, we haven't got it at the moment. Or, you know, Nav's money's tied up for the time being. And it transpires that four months later, he still can't get hold of any of the money that he's earned. And he ends up being released only because the judge shows a bit of leniency and just reduces his bail to money that his parents can put down, pending them being able to get back the $70 million that he's invested. It appears the Hound of Hounslow wasn't your typical Wolf of Wall Street and lost all his money, which he didn't seem to want to spend anyway, to fraudsters. His parents and his friends had no idea how much he was worth because he just didn't tell anyone. Traded out of his bedroom, wore a tracksuit, ate McDonald's, he drove around on a bright yellow bicycle that had a Lamborghini sticker, which he called his Lambo. Uh, And the irony was that he could actually afford a Lamborghini, but nobody knew that. He carried on riding his bike around Hounslow rather than buying a flashy Lamborghini or... One of the reasons I think people warmed to Nav is that he wasn't greedy in the traditional sense. He wasn't buying Ferraris and splashing money around on the type of things that other people that I write about and kind of white-collar criminals do. He really just didn't spend any of the money. I, I wonder if it's because to Nav, trading was like a computer game 
And if he didn't take it out, then it wasn't really real. At the same time, I can't help thinking it can't have been much fun for his parents. <laughs> I mean, there's a there's a brilliant quote from the dad where there's a reporter that turns up at their house days after Nav is arrested and he gets asked, you know, what, what does he make of it all? And he says, it's all news to me. I don't know anything about computers. You know, he's retired. They live fairly modest lives. Nav's mum was working in a pharmacy and at any point, he could have obviously made their lives much easier. There's a sort of tragedy there, but it's also fairly symptomatic of Nav's personality and maybe some of the things I was talking about earlier, like his challenges. Tell me a bit more about the authorities who were sort of following him up until now. What do they make of the man they find at the end of the chase? Most of what's happening is happening in the UK because Nav is fighting extradition to the US. And that process takes several months. And while that's going on, the US authorities are kind of busy building their case and preparing for trial. In the course of the investigation that's going on, more and more evidence is found because when they knock on his door, they seize his computer and they seize a camcorder. And this will probably make you laugh, but (laughs) Nav had been recording himself trading for a huge amount of time because he thought that lots of other people in the market were cheating. But in recording himself trading, he was also recording himself cheating. So when they found the videos... He didn't really have a leg to stand on. Why was he doing that? Why was he recording himself? Why, why, why? That's the eternal (laughs) question with Nav. (laughs) So the reason he uh, said that he was doing it is because he was so fed up with what he regarded as the widespread cheating going on in the markets that he wanted to document it. And so he set up a camcorder in his bedroom and you can sort of see his black hair coming into the screen every now and then. And he's giving a running commentary like, look, there he is. There's them cheating again. And he's commentating on other people cheating but he's also inadvertently documenting his own exploits in the market ah now it makes it quite hard to plead not guilty when there's evidence like that yes so nav's situation when he uh, was fighting extradition was that a he was running out of money and b the evidence against him was very very strong so the lawyer goes to the us and he says look You could go to trial, but there's a risk there for everyone. Why don't we come up with a plea deal and NAV will tell you everything that he knows about financial markets? The US Department of Justice agreed to this deal. And in November of 2016, NAV pleaded guilty and his sentencing was delayed because he was going to cooperate with the US authorities as they built other cases against other market cheats. So how did that work? He sort of effectively becomes almost poacher turned gamekeeper. He's showing them what to look for. He was taken to a lawyer's office in the city of London at the top of a skyscraper and he gets taken to a conference room and sitting in front of him are the FBI, the Department of Justice, the US financial regulator and there's a big screen and over the course of a week, NAV essentially gives them like a crash course in how cheating in financial markets work. They ended up dubbing that period home videos with NAV. And what did they make of what he was showing them? 
they were astounded by how fast he was able to react to information in the market and how fast he was able to place and cancel orders. They would ask Nav to pause the video and he patiently would take them back through it. But they were astonished by the speed with which he was able to react to movements in the market and just his skill as a trader. You know, it's no exaggeration to say that he completely changed the way that they view market manipulation and they factored, yeah, they factored in everything that he taught them. And as a result of the information he gave them, there's now been dozens of individuals who've been charged with spoofing. And they include some of the HFT firms that Nav so despised. So there's a kind of poetic justice to that. He is helping to take them down after all. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, to me, it's exactly like the movie Catch Me If You Can. It's a kind of Wall Street version of that. That is the, the con man who then helps people catch the con men. Yes, but, but he's this sort of con man who's doing it really out of a sense of fun. So having done that, having sort of given them these tutorials and having formed bonds with some of the investigators, earlier this year, he was sentenced in Chicago. Were you there? It was a kind of large, windowless courtroom and there's a judge sitting at the front. I was at the back in the in the gallery with other journalists and lots of people from the industry that were there curious because it was such a remarkable case. What happened there is that Nav's lawyer gave a speech about what he thought should happen to Nav. And he said that because of Nav's vulnerabilities, because of all the assistance that he's provided to the various authorities, they should effectively let him go home. And it was quite a remarkable request because the nature of the crimes and the amount of money that he'd made meant that he should have received a minimum of a six and a half year sentence. But unbelievably, and testament to how much they liked Nav and how much they uh, appreciated his kind of medical situation, the US authorities also agreed with his Nav's lawyers and said to the judge, listen, we think he's been punished enough. He's been incredibly helpful to us. We also think he should be allowed to go home. <laughs> that really is remarkable. I mean, that is like a film. Uh, I think that the judge said that in the whole time that, you know, she'd been doing her job, that had never occurred before. Nav, holding onto a piece of paper, read some words that he prepared. And it was actually a, a quite a poignant moment. And he said, I spent 36 years trying to find happiness on a path built on a lie. I made more money than I could have imagined. I did all the things society says will give you happiness. And when they didn't, I didn't know where to look. He said that he'd been addicted to trading. But during his time in prison, he'd come to realise that trading wasn't bringing him any kind of deeper meaning. And after his release, his brother had given him a series of spiritual books that he said had opened the door to him to a new way of seeing the world and a new way of living. And he said that money doesn't buy you happiness. And I'm glad that I finally understand that. Were you convinced by that when you saw him there? <laughs> it's a good question. I mean, obviously, he's going to say that, isn't he? Was I convinced by it? Yes, to a certain extent, I think I was convinced because I've done a huge amount of reporting around his time since his arrest. And... He has uh, taken up a real interest in spirituality. and However, I do think he's a dyed-in-the-wool trader and given half an opportunity to go back into the markets, particularly at the moment when markets are so volatile, I wouldn't be surprised if he jumped at that chance. What do you think he will do now? You know, to complete that story, both the prosecution and the defence were saying to the judge, let him off. <laughs> but the judge turned around and said, you know, when I first heard the facts of this case she said 
I thought you were going to be some kind of criminal mastermind. Now, here I am looking at a report of somebody with autism who lives with his parents in a bedroom that looks like it hasn't been changed since he was 13 years old. But your actions contributed to abusing the integrity of the market. And that's essential to maintaining a healthy economy. She decided that she couldn't completely let him off the hook. And so rather than sending him back to prison, she let him go back to the UK to serve out a year under house arrest. And the following month, the entire world was in lockdown. So, you know, <laughs> Nav's timing was uh, as impeccable as, as ever, really. He really does get the last laugh. Yes. He's under house arrest while everyone else in London is too. Yes, you couldn't script it. It's kind of great irony that the place where he was committing his crimes is essentially where he gets sent back to, but that's what happened. How is Nav viewed by his fellow traders? Nav's almost like a celebrity amongst certain parts of the financial world. Nav was a day really? Yeah, so Nav, Nav is a day trader on the outskirts of the financial world, far away from the city of London, far away from Canary Wharf. It's guys like Nav that are sitting in their bedroom and making money by trading financial markets. And to them, he was a hero. He was somebody that started out with absolutely nothing and he made a huge amount of money using his own wits and his own intelligence. Now, it turned out that he was also breaking the law, but that doesn't undermine what he achieved in the eyes of lots of people. How do you view him now? I sort of take pains not to really fall down on one side or the other. I had a huge amount of sympathy with his complaints about high-frequency trading. That doesn't mean that he was justified in what he was doing. So I don't think he's either a hero or a villain. He's somewhere in between, but he's a, a one-of-a-kind and a, a remarkable character. And I loved immersing myself in his world. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, Liam Vaughan, a financial journalist at Bloomberg. Liam's written a book on the story of Navinda Sarau, which is out later this month. It's called Flash Crash, A Trading Savant, A Global Manhunt, and The Most Mysterious Market Crash in History. He also wrote about the case for The Times magazine on Saturday, which you can read online at thetimes.co.uk. The producer was Will Rowe, the executive producer is Leo Hornack and the deputy executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder. If you liked what you heard, please do leave us a review. You can subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast and more. In these uncertain times, you can access expert analysis and the latest developments in the coronavirus crisis with The Times' dedicated daily newsletter. Sign up for free at thetimes.co.uk slash coronavirus. See you tomorrow. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl. 
Let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs> 